Good morning, good morning, good morning. I'm not done yet. That's good. That's good. Hug to your heart's content. Guys, there's a lot to cover this morning, so we're going to jump right in and uh, hopefully provide you with some time to to love on each other afterwards. So today we're going to learn about uh, several purposes for the scripture. And I stress purposes, but I think, uh, I think all of us understand that the Bible is more than just a book about morals and virtues. Uh, it is that, so please don't miss it. Um, it does contain those things. We also know that the Bible is a history book that gives us an account of ancient Israel and its various successes, as well as their failures and setbacks. Um, but the Bible is something far more expansive than these things. And although we can't touch on everything, uh, every purpose of the Scripture, I want to co- cover some key ideas that, uh, as are fitting or as is fitting with our series, uh, are things that Christians should know about the Bible. These are purposes that you absolutely should know about the Bible. Uh, I guess I'll start off just by uh, easing in a little bit and saying the one thing that the Bible is not, or the several things the Bible is not, it's not a, um, a uh, paperweight, it's not a dust cap for your bookshelf. It is not some magic book that keeps the demons away, right? It doesn't matter. You can keep it in your house all you want. It's not going to do anything if that's what you do with it, right? There are some key things that it is, it is purposed for, it is useful for. And so we stress a lot about reading our Bibles here. Uh, we stress a lot about uh, using it for its, uh, for its purposes. And so I hope you will see that there is a lot of reason to dive in to your scripture. Uh, The first reason for our Bible today, what we're going to jump into, is the reason of hope and faith. Um, So this is is the first purpose. If you're a note taker, you can write that down. The Bible provides us with uh, an understanding of our hope and an understanding of the faith response that is required. And you need to understand what I just said. There is a hope that God gives. You learn about it in the Bible. There is a faith response that is required. And you find out about that too inside of the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 11 verses 1 and 2 says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction or the evidence of things not seen. For by it, and in this uh, this verse it's talking about faith, By faith, the men of old gained approval. Faith, as we see it, is not merely a belief in a thing, but it's also a proof that can be seen in our lives. So there's hope that's given to us, and then there's a faith, and it's an evidential faith. Jesus' brother James rightly told us that faith without feet is not faith at all right? Faith without feet is not faith at all. And so the point... uh, though, is that the Bible communicates both of these ideas. It tells you what your hope is, it tells you what your response is, and it tells you what that response is supposed to look like to you and to the people around you all the days of your life. Among the hopes presented in Scripture, and there are many of those, we would be here all day if I just went through those, but uh, among the hopes presented in Scripture, salvation is the... um, 
is kind of the apex of this, okay? And so it's really important that you see this being the top hope that we have. And since our eternity is hinging upon this, it's, uh, I think, important that we get this hope right. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Salvation is the hope that we have, and we are saved through faith. That's the response that we give. And that, not of yourselves, and I have talked about this ad you know, ad nauseum, uh, the antecedent of that, the antecedent of it in this line is grace. It is not faith. It is the gift of God. Faith or uh, grace is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. There's the purpose of our lives, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And I've talked about this a lot, that Adam and Eve were made for this very purpose, and that purpose was to rule and reign. They were to be priests to the world, and so uh, we are to recapture that, or Jesus has recaptured that for us. The hope that we have is a salvation from a sinful and a broken world, and here's where I want you to really track with me. It's a sinful and a broken world that we caused. right? It's a sinful and broken world that we caused. We, as uh, James Stephan likes to remind us, we are rebels, okay? And that's an important thing for us to remember. We are rebels. So, this salvation, uh, this hope is a gift of God, and all that we have to do in response is to trust Him. God said, trust me. God said, lean into me. God said, rest in me. God said, come to me. That's the response that we're supposed to have. But hope, according to Peter, is also a living hope. And that is, it's not just a set it and forget it kind of idea, but it is something that motivates us in our life. Every day, we live by this living hope. Here's what 1 Peter 3 through 1, 3 through 7 says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Adam talked this morning in his devotion about the importance of the resurrection and that if Jesus be lifted up, men will be drawn to him. And Paul says later, he says, if it's not for the resurrection or if you don't believe in the resurrection, your faith is futile. It's hopeless. Here's why. If Jesus isn't lifted up, if the resurrection isn't true, men aren't drawn to him. That's just the way it is. But the living hope that we have is because of that resurrection or through that resurrection, what has happened? God has caused a born-again experience to be available to each and every one of us. So he goes on, Peter goes on and says, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The living hope that we, li- that we have, that we uh, um, respond to in faith, is a, is a hope that motivates us in this life 
to deal with even the stresses and the trials, the, the persecution and the frustrations that we face as Christians. And I hope that you guys know that because you're going to face them. And as we progress in a skeptical world, I believe that you're going to see them even more. Now, I do believe that Christians need to get their uh, heads straight on persecution. I think we need to remember that just because somebody doesn't like us because we're jerks doesn't mean we're being persecuted for following Jesus. Somebody's not liking you because you're a jerk, right? That, that's, that's it. And that happens whether you're a Christian or not, right? But if you follow in Jesus, follow after Jesus, and you proclaim his name, and you walk after him, and you speak of his truths, and you, and you tell people that there is one way to the Father, and that is through Jesus Christ, you will be rejected in many ways, okay? And you better embrace that. You better embrace that because it's coming, and it's going to come even worse here in the near future, right? But here's what's beautiful. You are being refined like gold is refined, and, and gold will perish, but you will not, amen? You will not. You will be crushed. You will be broken. You will be bruised, but you you won't be destroyed. Amen? You won't be destroyed. This is a beautiful, beautiful promise that we've been given. So there are many other aspects to our faith and to the hope that we have been given within the Scripture. But it's important to remember a couple of things. We have to rightly divide the Word of God to discover what is truly our hope. We've, we've already learned that the Bible wasn't written to us, although it is written for us. Why do I bring that back up in this moment? The importance of this is that some people uh, place hope in things in the Bible that were not hopes for us, okay? And so there, there are hopes in the Bible that were reserved for people long ago. And God answered those, and he answered them in Jesus, and, and it's a beautiful truth. There are hopes that belong to all generations, and those are the hopes that we should hang our hats on and we should live by. There are also hopes that belong to a future glory. And so we're looking forward to those things. But rightly dividing the word of God is necessary so that you are not left uh, discouraged and heartsick. How many of you know that, uh, that if you believe something that is not true for you, when it doesn't happen, you get discouraged? You get heart sick. Here's also another thing that's really important. Many people believe things that are not for them. They don't receive them. They don't grow heart sick. They just change the Bible to say something else that they want it to say. And so they keep living for stupid ideas that were never promised to them. Okay? It's really, really important that we get it right. Okay, there is, a, there is a beautiful future that we all get to look forward to. It's a future where there's no pain, no tears, no sickness, no nothing. But that future is not now. Do you know that? And when that future is not now, when we embrace that truth and we see somebody that grows sick, somebody that grows frail, somebody that dies, what we would say before their time, we're not losing heart. Why? Because we know now is not the time. It's not the promise for now. So we've got to be careful for what we talk about when it comes to our hope, right? Knowing what is ours will keep us from growing needlessly heartsick. Proverbs 13:12 says, "Hope deferred makes the heart sick." Or it'll make you change your story until you believe some nonsense otherwise, right? But the other part of this passage is beautiful. But desire fulfilled is a tree of life. You know what you and I should be focused on? The desire we know 
is to be fulfilled in us, to be fulfilled for us. So we must rightly divide God's word if we're to see it uh, for what it really is. Scripture is a reminder of God's goodness, church. It's a book of hope. It's a light to illuminate, uh, illuminate a better path for each and every one of us. And in tough times and hard times, it's an anchor to draw us back when we get off course. Can I get an amen on that one, right? So these are really important things. So right away, we've got hope and faith. You want to know why you should read your Bible? If you want either of those two things, you will find it there, okay? Number two, understanding and righteousness. Second, the Bible is is given to help us uh, truly or to understand true righteousness, uh, true righteousness because we've missed We've uh, misunderstood righteousness for so long. We've looked at it as um, everything we do to earn our way before God. But this is not actually what righteousness is, okay? So we need to really understand it. If it's true righteousness, righteousness, or if it's true that our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, as Jesus said in Matthew 5.20, then I would suppose we should understand it, right? Jesus does not ridicule the Pharisees all the time. He actually, in some ways, says, they've got it. They're understanding a thing. He says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. Otherwise, what's at stake? You will not enter the kingdom of God. Is that crazy or what? He's not making something up there. He's not not telling you the truth there. He's telling you something. So what in the world is this righteousness? Here's where we have to divide righteousness into two very important categories. Righteousness before God, which we're going to call today right standing. And then we're going to talk about righteous actions. And these are a byproduct of a right standing. This is a way of living that is fitting for God's people. This is what Galatians 5 talks about when it refers to the fruit of the Spirit, Right? These are things that come from those who are, uh, who are made right by Jesus. This is a way of living that is fitting for God's people. So we're going to deal with righteous actions first, and then we're going to talk about that right standing. I love what Michael Bird says in his book. He says this, he says, Scripture is not a divine list of life hacks. Did you know that? Scripture is not a divine list of life hacks. It is so much more than that. It is a, it's a beautiful picture of what righteousness, what reflecting the image of God truly looks like. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for. What follows is a, a, a benefit of the Bible, right? It's a purpose of the Bible. The inspired word of God is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Did you see it? Training in that righteousness. You've been declared righteous through Jesus, and we'll talk about that, and then you're going to be trained in what it means to look more like him. And so that is what the Bible does. Again, this isn't a life hack book. This is a training, uh, a training manual of, of variety, you know, of a variety of ways, uh, in a variety of ways. And that purpose is not merely intellectual assent. I hope that you don't walk away going, aha, I know what righteous living looks like. I've got all of the points listed out here, right? Instead, it's something bigger. It's something that actually plays out in our life. It's something that entails good works, and it is good works that we were designed for. These works, as we saw earlier, were, um, were made for us 
even before we were made, right? That we were actually created for the work itself. The scripture provides us with the wisdom needed uh, to live a good and pleasing life to God. Jesus tells us that the law can be summed up in these two things. Love God and love your neighbor. Do you know what the law is not summed up in? You know what righteous living is not summed up in? If this, then that. It is not summed up in, if it's this sin, then it's that punishment. Those things may be things we need to understand, but this is not all of righteous living. Having a heart that understands scripture and righteousness for its intended purpose is a heart that covers a multitude of sins. You are called to that for your brothers and sisters in Christ, to cover a multitude of sins in their lives, to correct them and to bring them back. A a heart that understands righteousness properly is a heart that operates in love, a heart that operates in forgiveness. It's one that reacts to others in grace. The opposite of this is having a heart that sees Scripture as just a black and white set of rules that that tends to uh, desire sinners to be punished for their crimes or to be cut off from the Father. It's, it's It's a way of living that has trouble forgiving. It often feels that it's unfair if God overlooks or covers sin. Why? Because God's supposed to be just. He is, and he doesn't need your help in being just, right? So it's really, really important for us to understand. Instead of resulting in good works, incorrect views of righteousness result in arguments about the best way to worship. Are you raising your hands in worship? Are you kneeling down right? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? Come on. This is where we go with all of these ideas. It results in the best way to believe or the purest theology or even who's the real Christian and who isn't. And please hear me, there are evidences and signs of those who truly follow Jesus and God told us we can see them. But we have to be careful because the Pharisees thought they had it down. And they were pointing the finger at everybody and telling them that they were not what they should be. And they were wrong. Jesus comes and actually points the finger and says, you, my friend, are not who you should be. Right? So there is still finger pointing, but it is done with an invitation to change that way of life. So we all do this. We all get in our heads about this stuff. And instead of presenting the world uh, with people uh, who love each other, which Jesus said would be the hallmark of true believers, uh, we we show them a bunch of disgruntled, fighting, arguing idiots, right? <laughs> I'm not going to have you turn to each other and say that, right? So we, we can't reach the world. We cannot reach this world regardless of our increased understanding and the better ways of thinking about the Bible unless we are willing to operate towards each other uh, in love. Amen? We, we have to do this. But this is where our righteous actions must remain. Uh, In a camp of good works, of ruling and reigning, of proper image bearing, in order to bring glory to God. But not in order to earn God's love. Because that has never been the story of the scripture. Abraham himself was one who lived by faith. And he was praised for that faith. He was not one who lived according to the letter of the law to gain his place in God's kingdom. 
Instead, he trusted God, and that was his, uh, that was his glory. On the other hand, righteousness before God or right standing is a completely different animal. So at this point, I want to introduce you to a new face within our church. Uh, His name's Dwayne Adams, and Dwayne received his PhD from Dallas Theological Seminary, and he has his PhD in philosophy and New Testament studies. And Dwayne's going to share with us a little bit of insight into uh, not only this right standing, this righteousness seen properly, but also we're going to be segueing into knowing God. And so he's going to talk to us about this cool view of understanding why Genesis or how Genesis was written and compiled. So thank you, sir, for joining me. Thank you for the opportunity. Absolutely. Well, this is a privilege. Um, I've gotten to know a few of you here, and this is a great opportunity to... um, just to work with um, Nathan in this conversation of trying to get to know uh, the Bible. Um, one of my professors used to say, uh, God has spoken. He has not stuttered. <laughs> Amen. And um, you have something in your hand that um, over uh, centuries, many people have died to possess. And um, what we're talking about here is the purposes of the Bible. And one of the most important purposes Uh, that Nathan's talking about here is um, the whole idea of training in righteousness. Um, I used to ask my students, how many of you in this uh, class are actually righteous today? (laughs) And you're sitting there going, well, I kind of hope I am. I I don't know. That that term is so slippery. It's so foggy. And uh, that's why I loved um, teaching Hebrew for 10 years, because Hebrew is concrete. The images in their brain are just real. Um, The idea of righteousness has two trajectories, and we all know them. We all live them every single day of our life. The first is relational. Every relationship, most of you, you know, you're a son um, or you're a daughter. That's a relationship, right? And that relationship has certain demands upon it. In fact, if you look at the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, um, children, what? Obey your parents. Okay, there's, a, there's actually a command, right? Um, every relationship has specific requirements um, or duties accompanying it. Okay, so there's a relational component. Um, and the other component is a legal component. In the biblical narrative, if I don't fulfill my relationship relationship requirements properly, I can actually be brought before uh, the court of Israel. And consequences. Case in point, um, Exodus um, 21. If a person steals your sheep, guess what? They just violated the neighbor law. They ripped you off. To be righteous, to be right with you, they can't take your stuff. And now, by the way, um, you can then go before the court of Israel and um, say, hey, this guy just ripped me off. Okay. Uh, they bring him before the court. And if it's an ox he stole, he has to pay it die back five times. Five oxes. Okay. If it's a sheep, four. Restitution. I used to ask my students this. How many of you have ever uh, borrowed? Now, this is a university setting. How many of you have actually borrowed a book from the library? Okay. Okay. How many of you have ever um, turned it in late? Ah, okay. 
Do you realize as long as you, you had a relationship with the library, got this? Are you guys tracking with me? You had a relationship with the library. Oh, okay, well, I'm going to borrow the book from you. Thank you very much. I'm going to turn it back in on a certain day. All right, you're righteous with the library. So I would ask my students, okay, um, if you have any outstanding books right now, do you realize you're unrighteous with the library? In fact, in Hebrew, you're rasha, you're guilty, and I, I can bring you before the court. Now, guess what's going to happen? When you bring that book back to the library, what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to pay a fine. Ah, I hope you got it. You just fully understand now the term of righteousness. Righteousness is simply being right in every relationship. And if you are not, there's consequences. That's it. End of message. Ah, not quite yet. Because remember, as um, Nathan properly uh, identified, what are the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Mind, Jesus adds later on, and he can do it because he's Jesus, all right? But the Hebrew text is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. What's the second commandment? Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, let's go back to this first commandment, the vertical component. In the ancient world, to diss a king was a capital offense. Did you know that? If you just didn't respect or give the honor to, due to a king, appropriate honor, that was dissing him, disrespecting him. And that was, well, expected. But Yahweh says, love me. Love me the way I'm worthy to be loved because I'm the great king and creator. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. And this means that if human beings who are the created ones simply ignore him, are they righteous with the Creator? No. In fact, Paul would say this in New Testament. All have sinned in what? Come short of what? The glory of God. No human being has given God the honor and glory that's due Him. No one. All have sinned and come short. There is no one, what? Righteous. No, not one. No human being. So you can have the sweet grandma four doors up, your, um, up from your house who buys the Girl Scout cookies. She's always sweet to the cats, okay? She's always a nice lady. But if she simply says, God, you hang out there. I'll hang out here. Everything's okay. Oops. Do you realize before the court of heaven... She is Russia. She is guilty. She's not given him the honor and glory. Are you getting this? Now, that means for us, we're training in righteousness. God says, look, every relationship you have in your entire life on the earthly sphere, I have expectations for you. And so we mine the scripture to know what God's like and then what he expects of us. We do not jettison Moses, but the one we use to interpret Moses for our daily life is who? Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord and Savior. Go to Matthew 28. Matthew 28. All authority has been given to whom? To me. 
Therefore, obey all I have commanded you. Ah. So a human being, once they're right with their creator, and by the way, he's mentioned it several times, God requires the response of faith in Jesus Christ. You know, the gospel is also actually the verb obey the gospel is a very common expression in the New Testament. Why? Because Jesus is, uh, God is actually proclaiming terms of um, uh, reconciliation. He's offering terms. Hey, I'm coming back to earth. I'm going to take over what I made. By the way, choose sides. And you choose a side by saying, okay, I believe the gospel. I believe it's good news. I believe it's true. I'm in. And then you express your faith that Good Friday was really good for you, not for him, but good for you. And the resurrection was truly an event that raised him from the dead and God's thumbed up on Jesus. The world says thumbs down. Huh? He was just another Jew that Rome's killed. No, no, no. God said thumbs up. I raised him. And now I'm going to hold the entire world accountable for the response to Jesus. Jesus is going to sift the world, y'all. And so my point is, what does God require of humans? To believe in his son. And so he's going to hold the entire world accountable. And this is how we're right with God through Jesus Christ. But now, I need to be right with you every day of my life. And that's why Jesus would say to us, uh, to us Hey, if you show up to the altar, in fact, you mentioned this a couple weeks ago. If you show up at the altar and realize another brother and sister has something against you, what? Leave it. My point is, righteousness means being in a right relationship based upon whose definition of what that means? God's. So, any outstanding library books out there? Okay, okay. Absolutely. Second, what I love about this, too, is that um, those terms are stated, and God's terms are pretty, pretty simple, right? Like, return the book, you know, or, or come back, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. It's not, it's not viewed as, um, hey, go, go get all of this stuff together first, right? right? And then right. you can come back. If we, We're going to talk about the prodigal son here um, as you and I would say, we enjoy the lost son concept because yeah. that fits the narrative, right? But, but the, we're going to talk about the lost son. And the lost son, what I love and always have loved about this, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it, um, he makes this whole speech out for his dad. He's like, I'm going to go back and I'm going to tell my dad I did this wrong and I've sinned against heaven and against you and all this stuff. And when he finally says it to his dad, his dad doesn't even acknowledge what he's saying. He just right away goes to his servants and says, get his robe, get his ring, get his sandals, put them on. The, the right standing that is given there is your son. Exactly. You're, you're my child. You've never been anything else. And so that's a huge piece of this component. Yeah, absolutely. Well, in fact, your uh, consistent um, uh, use of the term faith. Abraham is uh, Moses' poster boy in the Pentateuch. Yeah. For here's how you are right with God. Um, believe in him, he, he, Abraham believed in him, and it was counted for him for righteousness. Guys, do you realize we come to God as we are? We trust him as we are. We trust him. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a cancer victim. 
I need to trust my, my doctor. Yes. I don't get it together first. I acknowledge my condition first. And then I come and I trust him. And then I entrust my very life to you. Doc, cut me. <laughs> and I entrust my life to you, and I'm trusting you. And now, because you've said, hey, if you trust me, Dwayne, I'm going to operate, and I'm going to give you a new life, and all you need to do is trust me. That's it. Amen. And that's the thing he actually requires of us. That's it. When we come to him, and he says, all right, I'm going to take this broken mess of whatever, and I'm going to turn it into a Pulitzer winning whatever, or a Rembrandt. I'm going to just come to me. Amen. And what you're required to do is to trust me, and then I'll take care of the rest. I'm your new father. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to transform you. But the first thing you got to do is just show up <laughs> and say, Father, I've sinned against you in heaven. Get the ring. Get the calf. Okay. All right. Yes. The rest Amen. of the story. Guys, give Dwayne a hand. Thank you. Thank you very much. So... Dwayne and I have had several conversations. Barney and Dwayne and I have had several conversations. Dwayne and Debbie and Barney and Tina and Sarah and I have had several conversations. And I am happy because I have a dork right there with me that just wants to laugh about this stuff and talk and just talk and talk and talk. So it's an absolutely amazing thing. So guys, so far what we've seen is that the purpose of the Bible is it's teaching us of hope and it's teaching us about our faith response. We just learned that the Bible is teaching us what righteousness is in its right way, right? It is a right standing with God. It's a declaration that God has given. It is something that is to be believed on in faith. And then it uh, follows that we would behave him, that we would behave and we would honor him and we would live our lives to his glory, okay? So the third purpose and the biggest purpose for today really is knowing God. And I will, I will get through this uh, as quick as I can, but this is, this is one of the most beautiful stories that I know. It's the story of the, the lost son, and it is when we understand that it is communicating who God is truly, when we understand this, it will absolutely melt your heart. It will show you a new picture that maybe you didn't see before. So the purpose of the Bible being knowing God. In John 5, 39 through 40, Jesus says this, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He was talking to the Pharisees. And the truth is, we do have life in the scriptures. But the question is, how do we have life in the scriptures? Jesus continues and he says, it is these, the scriptures, that testify about me. You see, they looked at the scriptures for the words on the page and they missed the purpose of the Bible, which was to teach you to know God. And you know God when you know Jesus, right? You get this, right? So he says, it is these scriptures that testify about me, and you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. You got the right book. You're not hearing what they're saying. You're not seeing the purpose. It's all about me, right? The scripture is for knowing God, so we're going to dive deep into this area. Most of us are familiar with the story of the prodigal son, which I would... Uh, say we need to re retitle it The Lost Son. But in case you're not, I'm going to read it to you along with some essential context. And here's the essential context. The whole chapter. 
(laughs) You have to read the whole chapter in order to get it. Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. This will be on the screen. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now, I want you to take note of something really quick, that Jesus is talking uh, to a specific group of people. We, we talk about the Bible's, uh, the Bible's uh, audience all the time, and we say that it was written to people, but it was written for us. In this instance, Jesus is talking for the benefit of anybody who will hear him, but he is specifically talking to a group of people, and that group of people would be the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. What follows are three parables right in a row uh, that, that communicate the same exact truth. And it is, uh, it is an indictment, a correction, and an invitation to these Pharisees and these law keepers. The lost sheep is the first parable. The lost coin is the second one. And, as I've said before, the lost son is the third one. Here's what we read in verses 3 through 7. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice! With me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. And a wrong interpretation of this without reading it in its context is is us talking about saved and unsaved people and we're missing the stinking point here, okay? We're missing the point. It's important for you to notice that Jesus doesn't stop here. He doesn't offer any commentary. He doesn't pause to say, I just want to make sure you're tracking with me. He just keeps on going. But I have to do this because we've missed the point for so long. I want you to remember again, who is Jesus talking to? Pharisees and teachers of the law. But not just any Pharisees and teachers of the law. Those who are grumbling that Jesus is eating with who? sinners and tax collectors. He's, they're grumbling about it. So Jesus is addressing them. Jesus is eating with these people and he then tells this story. He says, this lost sheep, who would not go and find their sheep and when he's returned, celebrate that sheep. So he goes on immediately. Or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now what is the common thread so far? Something was lost, something has been found, and there's been rejoicing about it. And yet the people that Jesus is addressing with these three parables, are instead grumbling about it. They're throwing a fit about what's happening. The implication so far is that they are grumbling over sinners and tax collectors who were lost and have now been found, and Jesus knows it, but they actually don't know it. So now we arrive at the parable that everybody calls the parable of the prodigal son. Please keep the context, though, in mind as we read this. Jesus continued, 
there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And he probably had some library books too. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out, and I'll go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up, and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Why? Because he was searching. His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father ignores him. (laughs) The father said to his servant, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. Here's where the story matches up. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. Sounds like a grumbler we know. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never have given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. It was a lot of partying then with young goats. Anyway, but when this son of yours was, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My father, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Do you see what this is about yet? It's not about what a Jewish father would do versus what a worldly father would do. It's not about who's an older brother or a younger brother or any of these things. There's a lot of creative ways that we might interpret these parables. But there is actually a very simple and important message that's being conveyed. And the message is is this. God is searching for his lost sheep. And we should celebrate when they're found. As the Pharisees and teachers are grumbling about Jesus eating with sinners and tax collectors, Jesus is pointing out that they should instead be happy. They should instead come into the party. They should be rejoicing because that which was lost is now found. Jesus is revealing to them who they really are and at the same time revealing who he really is. According to an amazing prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 34, the Pharisees are depicted in this story as the older brother uh, 
in this story is the older brother. But they were also depicted as bad shepherds at one point in God's story. But the true shepherd, Jesus, had come. And his purpose was to gather the sheep and not to scatter them. Uh, This reveals to us who the Father is. Uh, He's one who gathers. He's one who forgives. He's one who saves. He's one who reinstates the prodigal son. And the Pharisees were being afforded a very important choice at this time. They could do the job that they were set to do, that is shepherd God's people well, or they could end up being the people that God says woe to in Ezekiel 34. Let me read this passage to you and mark it down in your notes, but I just want you to take in this passage. Just listen to the words. The word of the Lord came to me, that is Ezekiel, son of man. Ezekiel is the prophet in the Old Testament that's referred to the son of man the most times. Prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you shepherds of Israel who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourself with the wool, and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. By the way, an Old Testament understanding of healing and binding up the injured is what we need when we start to see Jesus moving in miraculous ways. We don't always see, poof, your arm grows back, okay? To bind somebody up and to heal them was to be their physician. It was something very different from uh, maybe the charismatic view that is popular today. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. They had the power to, but they didn't do it. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. Wait a second. Starting to see the parallel. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every hillside. They were scattered over the whole earth and no one searched or looked for them. Do you see the indictment? No one is looking for them. But what does Jesus do? He seeks that which is lost, right? Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will search for my sheep and look after them. Do you see who that is? It's Jesus. As a shepherd looks after his scattered flock when he is with them, so will I look after my sheep. I will rescue them from all the places where they were scattered on the day of clouds and darkness. I will bring them out from the nations and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will pasture them on the mountains of Israel, in the ravines, and in all the settlements in the land. I will tend them in a good pasture, and the mountain heights of Israel will be their grazing land. There they will lie down in good grazing land, and there they will feed in a rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. Psalm 23 coming to mind. I myself will tend my sheep and have them lie down, declares the Lord. 
I will search for the lost and bring back the strays. I will bind up the injured and strengthen the weak. But the sleek and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. Here we see something unbelievably important as to the image of God. Knowing God per the scripture's purpose. Jesus is making a God claim here. He is saying that he is the shepherd who came to search for the lost lamb. He is telling these Pharisees and these teachers of the law, I am the God of Ezekiel. I am. And I'm the one sitting at the dinner table with them, feasting and celebrating, and you're the one grumbling on the outside. This is why the Bible says of God, loving kindness and truth have met together in him. And righteousness and peace have kissed each other inside of him. Because if we want to know who God is, we look to Jesus. If we want to know what righteousness means, we look to Jesus' righteousness. If we want to look at what peace is, we look to our Savior and our King. The Bible teaches us exactly who God is. And his name is Jesus, our Messiah. He is not only the true shepherd in the first parable... He is the woman searching for the lost coin in the second parable. And he is the father who runs after his son who sees him a long way off in the third. Jesus' cry in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30 should make a new level of sense to you right now. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. I am not a bad shepherd who abuses you and treats you poorly and takes all that you have and leaves you with nothing. I am the one who loves you. This is who God is, church. You want to know him? Your Bible tells you who he is. He's the God of Ezekiel. He is the one who has come for each and every one of us. So the idea in my mind that God would not want that all would come to know him is such an absurdity that I cannot fathom this idea. My God is running after absolutely everyone. And when they come to him, there is celebration in every way. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. But did you catch the justice that is also the character of God? Justice and mercy have kissed. We just saw the mercy. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. But look at the justice in verse 16 of Ezekiel 34. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. We all love that picture of Jesus. He's awesome. But here's Jesus. The fat and the strong I will destroy. And he's talking about the shepherds here. I will feed them with judgment. To whom is this judgment directed? In Jesus' parable, this judgment is directed to the very Pharisees and the teachers of the law that are listening to him, that are grumbling that lost people have come to faith. So what is Jesus doing in the parables? Revealing who he is. The God of Ezekiel. The one who gathers the far off. The one who brings about justice. The scriptures all do what, church? They testify about him. You want life? Don't 
Don't focus on the words all the time. Look at the testimony. It's Jesus. And still he's not condemning the Pharisees. Not quite yet. He's doing with them, remember, that Jesus is the God of Ezekiel before he sits down at the dinner table. He's the God of Ezekiel while he's telling the parables to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And yet, at the end, he paints the picture of the father welcoming the older brother into the party. He's not condemning them. He's doing with them exactly what the father in the prodigal son's story does with the older brother. He pleads with them to come into the house and to join the feast. This is why the story ends so abruptly and so strange. Jesus has drawn a line in the sand, and the only uh, person that can cross that line are the Pharisees. But it's their choice to cross the line. It's here that we have a picture of what C.S. Lewis says hell is actually like. In The Problem of Pain, C.S. Lewis writes, I willingly believe that the damned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end. That the doors of hell are locked on the inside. These teachers, these older brothers, can come in at any point they want. Even after they didn't do their job, church. Do you have that kind of mercy on those who fall away from God? Do you have that kind of mercy on past teachers and leaders who may have hurt you? Do you have that kind of mercy? Because God, who is seeing his sheep be abused by these older brothers, still invites them in. I don't know what to do with that level of mercy, except for to be in awe of it. It's amazing to me. Everything that they've done, he simply invites them in. But what is locking the door to the father's house? Their pride. And the daggone door is locked from the outside. (laughs) They just have to go in. Just unlock the door and walk into the house. But no, they don't want to do that. So when when we want to know who God is, where do we turn? Simple answer is the Bible, right? But there are many pictures that we could see in the scriptures, right? We see a God who created the heavens and the earth and declares that all of that is good, Genesis 1.31. But we also see that same God say that that world was subject to futility because of our sin and he's going to destroy his good creation and make it anew. Why? Why not just boot us out? I don't know. But this is who God is. So he's a creator and in ways impartial to his creation. We see a God who tells Israel that he doesn't want them to have a king, 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 7. But we also see in the very same chapter a God working within the frailty of that humanity and giving them a king because they wanted it. Where's his justice? Just say no and stick with it. How many of you are dads or moms out there? Sometimes it doesn't work that way, right? You have to shepherd the heart of your children as well. We also see a God of impartial justice, one who establishes laws and commands, and he carries out the requisite punishment that is due when they violate those laws and commands. But we also see that same God filled with immense compassion as he tells a woman caught in adultery that he does not condemn her and instead calls her to a fresh start. Which do we choose which God do we choose? Hippie Jesus? Destructive God? Do we create separated creator of the universe? A deistic idea? All these snapshots represent God mighty fine. 
but they don't represent him fully. No single view of God or depiction of God can ever represent him fully except that of Jesus, our Messiah. So when you want to know who God is, you must look to his son. You must look to his son. This is why Jesus says in John 14, 8 and 9, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So it follows that if we are to gain a clear picture of the Father, all we need to do is look to Jesus. And when we look to Jesus, we know that we not only see the character traits of the Father, we see them in action. We can see how to love somebody. We can see how to be just. We can see how to be firm. We can see how to be kind. We can see all of those things because Jesus does each and every one of them. Jesus said the law is summed up in love God and love your neighbor. We love God when we know him and when we obey him. We love our neighbor when we model the God we actually know. This loving and this knowing is what gives us faith and hope. It's what enables us to be Jesus to a lost and dying world, to be shepherds who search for lost sheep, to be the women who search for their lost coins or fathers who welcome home lost sons. But we don't just stop there. We rejoice when they come to new life. We rejoice when they're made brand new. Guys, the, the Bible is filled with all kinds of purposes. But the one that I would hope you would walk away today searching for is the purpose to know your Father, to know your Savior better. The world is going to hell in a handbasket, but I'm telling you right now, if you will fix your eyes on Jesus, if you will look to him, you will have peace in the midst of that chaos. You will. You'll have joy where you couldn't have it before. You're going to have peace and joy and life and life abundantly. And then this very idea is going to change how our church operates. And that is, if somebody wants to come in these doors, if somebody wants to come to your house, if somebody wants to come and hear about Jesus and wants to hear of his love and his compassion and his peace and his, uh, his saving power for them, what is our response? Celebration. Celebration. The church should not be filled with people folding their hands, grumbling that that guy just walked in the door. Or that girl just walked in the door. I don't even care what their sin is, what their past is. All have sinned, as Dwayne said. All have fallen short of bringing glory to God. We should be a church that know our King, know our Savior, know our Father, and be the church who celebrates those who come to saving faith. So I hope that you'll walk away today with a really important uh, desire, a really important motivation to go search your scriptures and find out who it is that your God actually is. Amen.